You're listening to America's Web Radio. It's time now for the Doctor's Lounge Show with Dr. Scott Barber. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. I hope everybody had an amazing Christmas holiday and New Year's. Uh, we're off on to 2024. I know I've made some of my own New Year's resolutions. I have committed to reading 30 books this year. I noticed that a lot of smart people out there are reading books. Apparently, there's some correlation between reading and your intelligence and your ability to succeed in this world. And so I've committed to reading 30 books this year. I also had it dawn on me that my 17-year-old daughter will be 18 next year, and so I'm running out of Christmases where my kids will be home and in the house. Pretty soon they'll be off and on their way. Uh, my other daughter is 15. And so it kind of hit me hard that I'm running out of time with them, and uh, it really made me a little bit sad, but we had an amazing time together. It was great to spend a couple of weeks uh, really close with my daughters and, and to spend time with them. And I got to thinking about I have to get down to business with my fathering. Um, I feel like I've been a decent dad over the years. I had a great dad myself to sort of show me the ropes. And I think back on my life and about the things that my father gave to me that helped me to be successful and he was a naval officer. He was very well respected uh, by his men. Uh, when he was the captain of a ship in Pearl Harbor, when I was growing up in in Hawaii, he would take me to the ship from time to time. And I actually got to go out on the ship with him for a couple of what they call f- uh, family cruises. So they were doing some war games. I was on the ship. My dad was the captain and everybody treated me like royalty. I remember my Father telling me that one of the great experiences of his life was to be the captain of a ship because you could never get the experience of what it felt like to be a king any more than uh, when you're the captain of a ship out at sea. But I remember a lot of the sailors would come up to me and just tell me how awesome my dad is, what a great dad he was. And I remember at the time I was probably 13 or 14 thinking to myself, like, yeah, I do have a great dad. And as I've gotten older and I look back on it, I realize a lot of those young men were really just kids too, 18, 19 years old. And I think my father was able to uh, be a father figure to them. And one of the things my dad did that was great was to always help me understand that in order to be successful in this life, you have to compete. Everything we do in this world is a competition. It's a competition with ourselves. It's a competition with other peoples, and we compete for everything. We compete uh, in school. We compete for jobs. We compete for girls, and, and girls compete for boys. Life is just a competition, and it's a series of wins and losses. And my father used to teach me that learning to be a good winner and a good loser and an honorable person was going to allow you to be successful in this life. And I've also been going back and reading The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, and I'm an older person now with much more experience as a doctor, as a businessman, as a as a parent, and I get so much more out of this very complicated book, The Wealth of Nations, written in the uh, late 1700s by Adam Smith, Uh, and one of the comments he made in this book was, 
there's very little difference between human beings in regard to their physical abilities or their mental uh, mental abilities. The thing that separates individuals are their habits. And I just remember thinking like, wow, that really is such a common sense sort of thing, but it seems we've lost it in this world, this world that has just increasingly gone insane where people are actually submitting their pronouns and emails and things like that, that I just, I'm sorry, I'm never going to wrap my head around this stuff. And I feel that in order for us to save this country and save health care, we're going to have to have a return of meritocracy because from meritocracy stems every other important facet of life and the human condition. And it's that absence of meritocracy that leads to uh, problems in the way we run our society, the way we run uh, our our country, the way we run our hospital systems and our medical care. It all stems from this divergence from meritocracy. Now, Victor Davis Hanson, one of my favorite thinkers, uh, professor, uh, made some comments on meritocracy recently, and I want to play you uh, what he said. The great Victor Davis Hanson talked about Stanford. announced the incoming class of 2026, and they boasted that there were only 23% white applicants in a demographic that has three times that number. But here's what was interesting. They would not tell you of the people who were admitted how many did or did not take the SAT, which is optional now. But they did want to emphasize that those that took the SAT and got a perfect, that's almost impossible to do, a perfect score on the SAT, they proudly announced they rejected 75% of them. And so it's almost a boast that we're not going to be bound by meritocracy. So I talked to some people off the record in Silicon Valley, and one person, if I were to name his name, everybody would know him. He said, we would rather have a a coder from Georgia Tech than we would from Stanford. So it's starting to affect us everywhere. So he's saying that you have people out there that are making decisions about uh, hiring individuals and that the this particular uh, high-level executive in Silicon Valley says he would rather hire somebody from Georgia Tech than from Stanford. Wow, that's an amazing comment to me. I, uh, you know, growing up in Hawaii and I went to uh, Punahou, which is a great uh, private school in Hawaii, one of the best in the world. And, and I really am thankful to my parents for sending me there because it really made my life because I was in a crucible of competition with very smart, very talented people who also had parents who were very committed to their education. And it taught me how to behave. And even though I was probably out of my weight class, most of the people around me, I always felt were smarter than I was. They compelled me to do better, to work harder, and to think bigger. And as a result, uh, that that ended up having a very positive effect on my life and my career. But uh, one of the things that you have to look at here is it's it is clear that people understand that political uh, aspirations, people that are trying to change uh, our current politic through. Uh, um, policies like affirmative action are causing people to have uh, doubts about the quality of the people in their life. When you go to the dentist, when you go to the airport, uh, when you go 
to to a bank and you try to get financial information, I think what's happening is because we've gotten so far away from meritocracy and we're trying to push affirmative action uh, for protected classes or what is considered to be favored classes, people have naturally lost faith in the idea of, am I getting the best dentist? Am I getting the best pilot? Am I getting uh, the best doctor? Or am I getting somebody who was put in that position because the entity, the school, or whatever was trying to hit some sort of quota based on skin color, which, you know, in this day and age, we have to understand we don't care about it. And this is the thing that really frustrates me. The fact of the matter is the vast majority of people do not spend their time thinking about race. Uh, we think about uh, people in our lives and and what they can do for us because people are generally uh, – focused on their own issues and that's a natural normal uh, state of being and so when we encounter other people our concerns are always can this person be a good friend to me can they be a good boss to me can they be a good uh, employee for me are they going to be a good doctor are they going to be a good pilot people don't really care what their race or their gender or what they do in the bedroom uh, they care about are they good at whatever uh, part of that relationship Affects me, and I can just tell you, I was traveling to uh, Las Vegas a couple weeks ago with one of my UFC fighters, and I was getting ready to corner for him. And unfortunately, we lost that fight. Uh, Cody Durden, uh, he was on a four or five feet fight win streak, and he went up against uh, one of these guys from Dagestan, one of these Khabib guys, and was just an amazing uh, fighter, probably will be champion in one day. Cody put up a good fight, but we lost that one. But the thing that was interesting to me was on the way out uh, of the the uh, flight, we were standing in the airport, and I was with a friend of mine. We were waiting to get on the plane, and the pilot comes and walks in, and she's a, I don't know, six-foot-tall woman and goes walking on the plane, and to me, I looked at her, and I didn't really think much about it. She seemed very professional the way she was talking to the staff. But we overheard some people next to us going, oh, boy, she's not going to be a good pilot because she's a woman. And my friend and I kind of looked at each other like, well, that's kind of weird. Like, what is it about being a woman that would make somebody concerned about uh, being a pilot? And I guess the idea is it's something that typically is uh, a male uh occupation i guess and maybe that has to do with a lot of pilots come from the military and you know it for the most part the military pilots i guess were made up of men anyway the point i'm trying to make is you have people out there that are obviously thinking about the loss of meritocracy in this world now it got me thinking like <clears throat> as i was getting on the plane i started thinking to myself well uh, you know, I, I don't really think much about this. I, <laughs> I don't think about pilots, but I do think about it in medicine. And it just got me to thinking, like, well, why wouldn't a woman be a good pilot? Do they have the same opportunities and all this kind of stuff? Anyway, we're on the plane, and it's the greatest flight ever. She's I'm, – I'm a nervous flyer. Anybody who knows me knows I can't stand flying. Uh, I always feel like uh, I, I have to show courage in front of my kids when turbulence and things like that, and I just have such a hard time doing it. I don't love flying. I admit it. I like a nice, smooth flight. I can't stand takeoff. Uh, landing doesn't bother me so much, but I really hate the takeoff. Anyway, this pilot was amazing. She spoke to us throughout the entire uh, trip, so she was constantly telling us 
you know, what was happening, what the sounds were making, uh, when to expect turbulence. We had one second of turbulence and she was immediately on the radio telling us that she was going to go to a different altitude. It ended up being a super smooth, great flight. The landing was one of those landings where I didn't even realize we landed. You know, it was just so smooth. I was flying. Next thing you know, we're stopped. And I was like, wow, I didn't even notice we hit the ground. So it was an amazing flight. But there were people on there that were questioning her ability because they were worried about a world we live in where meritocracy has taken a back seat to other issues. Now, consequently, on the flight back home, a couple days later, it was a male pilot, and it was one of the worst flights ever. The turbulence was unbelievable. The landing was horrible. We hit the ground hard. We were blowing all over the place landing, and I was it just – it really got me thinking about this whole concept of meritocracy because the reality is we know that there's not a lot of difference between people based on gender and race and all this other kind of stuff. It's their habits that make us who we are. And we need to get back to a society where we understand that establishing habits, the early bird gets the worm, hard work, honesty, integrity, accountability, virtues, wisdom, which is the knowledge of things that never change. These are the things that make make us who we are. And until as a society we start focusing on that, uh, we're not going to get back to a meritocracy. And just as a kind of a corollary to that, my daughter... Uh, is having uh, issues with uh, her theater class. So my daughter is a fantastic singer. She's in the process of releasing an album, and you know she's she's really just quite a great singer. And she's in her theater class, and she's, in my opinion, the best by far singer in the theater class. And for whatever reason, the theater teacher just doesn't like my daughter and won't give her any roles. And it's ridiculous. Over the years, as my daughter was an underclassman, she was a great singer. And I thought to myself, okay, she's not getting roles because she's an underclassman and they want to give it to the older kids. And I could kind of wrap my head around it. But now she's a junior. And it's just become obvious that for whatever reason, this theater teacher doesn't like my daughter and won't give her any roles and my daughter was very disappointed and for anybody out there who's a father and particularly a father of daughters when somebody is out there hurting your daughter you you know how you feel and i'm i'm having um non-biblical uh, unkind thoughts about this theater teacher because she's hurting my baby but i took the opportunity to talk to my daughter about the fact that this is the life that we lead this is the world that we live in Every human being comes across people that for whatever reason, they're just not on our team. They just don't like us or they're not going to give us opportunities. And this is just a fact of life. And I talked to her about what do you do in these situations? And I said, first of all, you pray. Second of all, you try to see if there's anything you can do to overcome it. So my daughter went in and spoke to the teacher. And of course, the teacher went in and said, well, the reason that I'm not giving you the roles is because your acting isn't up to par, which is ridiculous. None of these kids, I shouldn't say none, but the vast majority of these kids act about the same. <clears throat> There's a couple of them that are really special. But the difference in acting is so minuscule between these kids and the difference in their ability to sing is monumental. My daughter's ability to sing is so much greater than a lot of these other kids that I'm not buying that one. <clears throat> but I told my daughter, okay, you have choices here. You can stay and continue to work and understand you're probably not going to get roles or you can use the time to do other things. And so she's decided to stop uh, 
banging her head against the wall with this theater teacher and put more energy into her own music. And she's been spending more time in the studio. And this is a life lesson. And it got me to thinking, what if I wasn't there? Let's say my wife and I got divorced and I just wasn't there for that moment to have that conversation. I couldn't talk to my daughter about, first of all, letting her know that she's an amazing singer and letting her understand that sometimes in this world, people get in our way for whatever reason. They don't like us. And that you have to just soldier on. You know, this is a moment in life that she's learning from. And I remember thinking back on my own life when, when, uh, one, one time in particular that was so meaningful for me. I was, when I, when I was a little kid, I was one of these Ritalin kids. And I think a lot of you guys know about, uh, what we used to call the little kid athlete, <clears throat> like before you hit puberty where there was that athlete who was amazing, but then things kind of change after you hit puberty and people start getting bigger and taller and stronger and faster. <clears throat> and that difference in athletic ability changes things. So I was that little kid athlete. I dominated everything before puberty. I mean, swimming, football, soccer, it didn't matter. I scored like six goals a game in soccer, football. Nobody could tackle me and swimming. I was dominant. But as we started going through puberty, my dominance started to fade because I wasn't the greatest athlete in the world. I wasn't overly fast or quick. And, you know, I certainly didn't have strength that was any, 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 uh, great, great thing to write home about. And I started getting frustrated because I worked really hard, particularly in soccer. I, I, I practiced every day, all day. I really worked hard. Nobody came close to me and I just wasn't doing very well. My dad recognized that I was down on myself for a period of time. He came into my room one night and he just said, Hey man, what's going on? And I was like, dad, it's just not fair. I work so much harder than everybody else. I really put, put effort in his soccer and I'm just, I'm not dominating like I used to. And my dad just said, listen, this is life. Sometimes things go that this way. You know, not everything works out for you all the time. He goes, but the one thing I can promise to you is good things come to those who work hard. And I thought to myself, wow, that was so powerful. It changed my life. And I know as a parent, my father probably didn't even recognize that as being a pivotal moment in his fathering of me, but it was one of the biggest things he ever said to me. And for whatever reason, that stuck. And I believed him. And so because I recognized that I know my dad, when he was talking to me, he didn't know when the moments were monumental. I'm kind of the same way with my daughters. You know, I try to spend time with them going to the store and doing the little things and just talking about life. And I don't know if they're paying attention to me. I mean, they're always, if you got kids, you know, they're snapping all the time, whatever. They'll be sitting there with the phone, taking pictures of themselves. I'm like, what the heck are you doing? And it's like, oh, I'm snapping. Uh, I still don't know what that is. You guys can figure it out on your own. But the point I'm trying to make is I talk to my girls all the time and I never know if they're listening to me. But I know that when I was a young person and my dad would talk to me, it had very important ramifications on the character that I developed. And that's what we need to talk about when we're focusing on meritocracy. Maybe we're having problems in the home uh, because there aren't enough parents that are staying there to be able to parent their kids on a regular basis. And maybe that has something to do with our meritocracy. Now, there are important things about meritocracy uh, I do think that there are certain instances where meritocracy can take a backseat. For example, when you're playing recreational sports and you're signing your kid up to, to play sports, I do think that 
there needs to be uh, a situation where your kid gets playing time. So if you join a recreational, say, soccer team, and, you know, you're paying your money to be in the league. And, you know, you're back when I was a kid, it used to be you had to play at least one quarter of a four-quarter soccer game. And I do think that that's important because, you know, we all put our kids in different things uh, and we want them to have an opportunity to play. But then as you start to get on a select team or a competitive team, then the meritocracy takes over. And I remember when I joined a select soccer team a long time ago, my father was the coach. And he pulled me aside and he said, hey, listen, Scott, you're not going to play if you're not the best player. This is a select team. I'm the coach. And, you know, if you're not if you're not the best, you're not going to be out there. And he's like, I just want to give you that heads up. He had that conversation with me. Now, as it turned out, I was by far the best player on the team. And so, of course, I played. But my dad put something in my mind about meritocracy. And he helped me understand that, you know, in order to be selected, you have to perform. Now, you fast forward many years later, uh, I was the Hawaii State Player of the Year in soccer back in 1983, so I got recruited to UCLA, which was the number one soccer team in the country, and my entire life, my identity had been Scott Barber, the soccer player, and I really thought I was going to be the next Pele. So I get to UCLA, and we're practicing, and I mean, these players, they're big, they're fast. They're quick, they're athletic, and they're great players. And I can remember sitting on the plane flying to UCLA wondering, I wonder if I'll see a player who's as good as me. Well, the answer to that question was yes. They were just all better than me. And I remember uh, practicing, and uh, I remember the coach, Ziggy Schmidt, who uh, I believe he's the LA Galaxy coach now. But he came up to me and he said, you know, Scott, uh, you're doing okay we think you have a good chance of making the team. And I can remember sitting there thinking to myself, wait a second, I'm not already on the team. I thought that was kind of the whole concept of being recruited. And I just remember having this anxiety, like I thought I was coming to UCLA to be on the team. And now he's telling me he thinks I have a good chance of making the team. And that was the first time I became aware that maybe I wouldn't. Now I did make the team and ended up having one of the most brutal years of my life. And it was a year where I learned that I was not going to be the next Pele and that even being a professional soccer player was not on the ticket for me. These guys were just so fast, so quick, so strong. And I was just, I went from a big fish in a small pool to a very small fish in a very big pool uh, overnight. And it was tough to take mentally, emotionally, and physically. I can remember the guys uh, were saying to themselves like, hey, let's go do a run down to the beach. And I'm at UCLA. I don't even remember. It's been so long. But this run to the beach was probably five or six miles. And they were all talking about, let's just do a light jog down to the beach and, you know, get a work on. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm down for that. Let's do it. So we start running. And, I mean, these guys, I guess it was a jog for them. I was running absolutely as fast as I could. I had my eye on the foot of the guy in front of me. It was Pat. I can't remember what his name was, Pat something or other, but he was a wing. And he had these long strides, and I just kept looking at the back of his foot, and I kept saying to myself, I'm going to have my foot match his foot. When he steps, I'm going to step. And I, when I look back on my life, this is one of the things I'm the most proud of. That five-mile run was so hard. I was beyond my capacity to be able to keep up. But I mentally willed myself to stay on this guy's heels for the entire five or six miles, whatever it was. And I mean every step of the way I wanted to stop. I was just 
I was just out of my element. And I just remember getting to the beach and when it finally ended, there were so many emotions. First of all, I was scared. Uh, these guys were just jogging out there. I was absolutely running as fast as I could and I could barely keep up with these guys and they're supposedly just jogging out there. And it started that first set of doubt where I thought to myself, maybe I'm out of my element. Now, <clears throat> I know I seem like I'm all over the place, but this has an important uh, connection to the idea of meritocracy. You see, I'm starting to learn that if you are not of merit, uh, if you do not belong, you're not going to make the cut. And it's not the worst thing that can happen to you in the world, because the lessons I learned there, trying as hard as I could, working as hard as I could and and making myself the best I could be, I trans, I trans, translated into other uh, endeavors. And that's where I became a doctor. Now, I can remember uh, at UCLA, I'm out in the training camp there. I'm there all summer. Season starts. I want to say we were going to Green Bay. I want to, th- I want to say it was Green Bay. So we fly out there and all of a sudden this guy, Paul Caligiri shows up. He hadn't been there all camp, gone. And he shows up at the field, and I'm thinking, and then all of a sudden the coach, Ziggy, puts him in, starts the game. And I'm sitting here thinking, what's going on here? This guy didn't even show for the entire camp. All of a sudden he just waltzes in here, and he's going to be starting. I've been here all summer busting my tail. Well, it turns out Paul Caligiri wasn't there because he was playing in the German Bundesliga. He was one of the first Americans to to play in that league. So he was already a professional soccer player. And this guy was the most fantastic player I'd ever seen. The speed, the quickness, the 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 vertical, I mean, just his ball control. It was it was sublime. It was other level. And I can just remember uh, one of the worst experiences of my life, and I promise I'll get off this UCLA stuff, but I have a point to it. Uh, we were in a we were in a drill where the coach divided the team up into uh, two sides. So my my number was number seven. Paul Calgary's number was number seven. We were standing on either side of the goal. The drill was the coach throws the ball out into the middle of the field. He calls a number out. If your number's called, you sprint out to the ball. The person who gets to the ball is on offense, turns around and goes to goal. The person who doesn't get there is on defense and has to stop the the player who gets the ball. So I was number seven. Paul Caligiri was number seven. And I I didn't really know this guy. So coach throws out the ball and Paul runs out to the ball. And I mean, he gets there about four and a half hours before I do. He's just so fast. And so I'm on defense and he dribbles up to me. He puts the ball between my legs and he scores. And I'm a little stung. You know, we used to call that Meg. You know, you get Megged if you put the ball between the legs. And people are always trying to do that to other people. Any of you guys out there who are soccer players, you know what that means. It's like it's like a big deal to be able to Meg one of your teammates. And certainly if you can do it in a game, it's a big deal. You're always trying to put the ball between somebody's legs. It just shows sheer dominance. So I just got Megged in front of the whole team. And, you know, I'm a freshman. And, you know, I'm I'm – I'm trying to make my way in this world. I'm trying to impress the coaches, and that certainly was not doing the trick. So we go back to the line. Some other players get called. Next thing you know, seven gets called again. I sprint out as fast as I can, and, of course, Paul gets there five hours ahead of me, turns around, comes to me, puts the ball between my legs, and he scores a second time. Now I'm sucking my thumb in my head. I mean, I'm just I'm humiliated. I'm scared. I don't know what to do. So... Sitting there, some other players get called. We're watching this thing, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, 
I know I can't beat him to the ball, so I'm just going to get ready to play defense. I don't even care if he scores, but I'm just not going to let him put the ball between my legs. And so Paul, uh, coach throws out the ball, like call number seven. Instead of racing to get out there, I've kind of get more in a position to play defense, knowing he's going to beat me to the ball. I've got my legs close together because the one thing I'm not going to let him do is put the ball between my legs. And sure enough, he megs me again, and he scores a third time. So three times he gets to the ball. Three times he puts it between my legs. Three times he scores. And I can tell you that night I went back to my dorm room and literally sucked my thumb because I just had a hard punch in the nose realization that I'm not the best player in the world, that I'm not, you know, going to be, you know, even starting on this team, let alone a professional soccer player. And it was just a really hard, tough time of life. I'm 19 years old, I think, at the time. And my entire identity, my whole life was Scott, the soccer player. And now who am I going to be? And it was a very, uh, it was a very tough thing to take. And the rest of my year at UCLA did not go well. Um, I ended up getting redshirted and then, um, I, uh, I, we got into the following, the, the season ended and then we got into the, the following league or the following, you know, whatever, the, the spring. So it's after the season and it's in between the end of the year and the beginning of sophomore year next season. And so I was getting a lot of playing time and I guess they were looking at me and everything and I was really starting to play well. I was starting to come around. Um, I remember I had my great moment where, uh, I got a ball on the wing and I fought off a couple guys. I dribbled to the goal line. I sent in a cross and Thomas Silvis came in and scored a goal. And it was really a great moment. I came off the field and people were telling me, you look like Dale Irvine out there, who is our center midfielder and just a total stud. And I'm thinking to myself, all right, it's coming around. I remember Dale came up to me and he said, man, you keep playing like that and you're going to be starting next year. And I was like, so puffed up and full of myself. And I was like, all right, it's on now. Here we go. And so at the end of the year, you go down and you sit with your uh, your coach. So I'm going down to meet with Ziggy to have my end of the year meeting. And this is where they kind of tell you where you are, what they think about you and everything. And uh, <clears throat> the uh, I'm sitting there and I'm walking past Poly Pavilion, the basketball center there at UCLA. I'm getting ready to go into Ziggy's office. And I'm having these thoughts about, you know, Dale telling me how great I was playing. I was probably going to start next year. And I was sitting there getting ready to be told, you know, how I'd really come along. And they were ready to, <clears throat> you know, to give me the keys to the city. Uh, and that is not how the meeting went. I sat down and <clears throat> Steve Sampson was in there. And he was the assistant coach and Ziggy Smith. And they looked at me and they said, you know, you're a good athlete. You're not a great athlete. We think you're tight in the hips. Tight in the hips. I'd never heard that before, but <clears throat> that kind of hurt. It still stings almost, well, more than 40 years later. It still stings that I was tight in the hips. And uh, they said, we don't know if we're going to have a spot for you on the team next year. And I just talk about a punch in the face, like not only not starting, but like you might not be on the team next year. And so based on that conversation, I elected to uh, leave the team. I transferred to Berkeley, and that's a whole other story we won't get into. But I was in a world where meritocracy was everything, and I failed. And after we come back from this message, I'm going to tell you how that failure and how the societal demand for meritocracy led to me uh, being the doctor that I am today. And we'll discuss that transition when we get back. You're listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and we'll be right back.
Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. If you want the truth about politics, medicine, weapons, classic cars, and more, you'll want to tune in to America's Web Radio. You can listen to all of your favorite shows live at www.americaswebradio.com or on demand on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. That's www.americaswebradio.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your healthcare freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on America's Web Radio. And we are talking about meritocracy today. Before the break, I was explaining how my soccer career uh, came to an end. And now we're going to pick it up on the backside. So I end up going to college. I went to Berkeley after I went to UCLA. I ended up playing rugby and had a great rugby career. I was All-American. I don't need to get into all that kind of stuff. We won the national championship. I was co-captain of the team. Uh, and I did not let my failure in soccer keep me down. I used the lessons that I had learned about hard work and perseverance and keeping my head down and trusting my father that good things come to those who work hard. And I kept uh, doing what I needed to do and was successful on the athletic field, but my grades didn't do too well. And my grades didn't do well for a couple of reasons. The first was I had a severe reading disability that I didn't know about. I just considered myself to be stupid. And I knew that uh, I hung out with smart people my whole life from high school all the way through to today. And I was always among these people that were getting 15 or 1600 perfect scores on their SAT scores. They could read books instantaneously and retain the information. And that was just not my experience. I can remember being back in seventh grade. They used to have these reading uh, things called the SRAs. And it was basically you, they were color coded. So it'd be, you know, all these different colors and you'd have to read, I don't know, maybe 10 or 20 or something different ones of a color. Uh, and then when you finish those, you'd move on to the next color. And basically what you would do is you would read a story on the front and then there'd be a bunch of questions regarding that story on the back. And you'd have to answer those questions correctly. And once you pass the test, then you could go on to the next card. And I just kept falling further and further and further behind. You know, people would ask like, what color are you on? Oh, I'm on purple. I'm on blue. I'm on whatever. And I'd be like, I'm seven colors behind all you people. And I can just remember it really hit me hard as being like, I'm the dumbest person alive. I don't understand why I can't do this. It's like every kid in the class is so far ahead of me and I'm just a loser. This is seventh grade. And I kind of always felt that way in the classroom. Um, I knew I wasn't dumb. Uh, but I just did not do well. I didn't read well. 
and I had a hard time in class and I didn't apply myself as a lot of uh, young people do when you're, especially as a boy, I can't speak to girls. My girls are amazing. They, they do a great job, but, uh, you know, my parents didn't really focus on the academics a lot in terms of they, they, as long as I got B's, they were kind of okay. My dad and mom never really uh, paid a whole lot of attention to the work I was doing. It was just as, you know, as long as I didn't get into trouble and I, I was okay. You know, I didn't get into trouble, but I was a B minus student. And, uh, you know, that seemed to be about right based on the effort that I put in. And so I got into UCLA, uh, playing soccer and I did very well my freshman year in college. And the reason was, is they had the athletes there at UCLA and they talked about the fact that if you had a three, five in, in high school, you can expect to get a two, five here. And I remember I had a two, nine in high school and I went two, nine in high school, one, nine here. Well, I'll be expelled. And so I was scared about that. And so I worked really, really hard my freshman year and I ended up getting all A's, uh, which is what helped me transfer to Berkeley. Uh, and also I was on the soccer team. And so everybody knows if you play sports, that sort of gives you a backdoor entry into a lot of schools, a lot of extracurricular activities do. I, um, I remember going to an anthropology class. So, I was one of these people like, if you're going to succeed, you need to find somebody who's been successful and do what they do. This is something my father taught me. And so I would read, I would take notes, I went to class, I did everything you were supposed to do. And they used to have office hours for the professors. So after class, you could go wait in line and I would take all the questions that I got while reading and I would go to the professor and I would sit through these office hours because I wanted to leave no stone unturned. And I can remember this one anthropology professor telling me, like, you're doing too much. Like, nobody works this hard in anthropology. And he's laughing at me. He's like, you got an A. Don't, like, you're wasting time. You're wasting my time. And I just remember thinking, what an odd thing to say. Like, he's telling me I'm doing too much work in this anthropology class. So that always kind of stuck with me uh, because – I just don't appreciate it. The guy was a college professor and I always, I always look back on it like I was annoying him. I was costing him time. He didn't want to be there to sit with the kids and he kind of felt like I was just taking advantage, I guess, of the, the time. But, you know, this is as an old man now reflecting back on his life and looking at things and just kind of understanding how the world works. But <clears throat> the thing that's so important here is the concept of meritocracy because as Adam Smith said, in the wealth of nations, there's not very much difference between human beings in terms of their intention, uh, intelligence and physical abilities. The things that separate us are our habits. And that's the thing that we need to get back to because when we get away from a meritocracy, we not only get away from the best people doing the most important jobs, but we also get away from the people who work hard. Because that's really what you're talking about when you get rid of a meritocracy. When you take away the meritocracy, you take away people's reason for working hard and for committing themselves. Because on the one hand, you'll have somebody who's not a protected class who says, well, it doesn't matter how well I do, so I'm not going to work hard. And then you got somebody who knows they're a protected class and they're going to be put forward regardless. And they say, there's no point to working hard. I'm going to make it anyway. And that's not good for society because... As a society, if we don't have the best doctors, we don't have the best lawyers, we don't have the best pilots, 
you know, the best people in the police force. If we don't have the best people, we're all going to suffer. And we're seeing it happen in real time. And in order to demonstrate that to you, let's go look at Dr. Marty McCarry's uh, testimony before Congress, which is so important because we're living in an age where we talk about it on this show all the time, where you have these group of elites, these so-called experts that are trying to tell us how the world works and they're not allowing us any free speech. If anybody tries to exercise free speech, they're canceled. We talk about it on this show all the time. And Dr. Marty McCarry, before Congress, talking about during the COVID era, the greatest perpetrator of misinformation was the United States government. And I can never play this often enough. Here we go. The greatest perpetrator of misinformation during the pandemic has been the United States government. Misinformation that COVID was spread through surface transmission, that vaccinated immunity was far greater than natural immunity, that masks were effective. Now we have the definitive Cochrane review. What do you do with that review? Cochrane is the most authoritative evidence body in all of medicine and has been for decades. Do you just ignore it, not talk about it? That myocarditis was more common after the infection than the vaccine. Not true. It's four to 28 times more common after the the vaccine. That young people benefit from a booster. Misinformation. Our two top experts on vaccines quit the FDA in protest over this particular issue, pushing boosters in young, healthy people. The data was never there. That's why the CDC never disclosed hospitalization rates among boosted Americans under age 50. The vaccine mandates would increase vaccination rates. The George uh, Mason University study shows it didn't. It did one thing. It created never vaxxers. Over and over again, we've seen something that goes far beyond using your best judgment with the information at hand. We've seen something which is unforgivable, and that is the weaponization of medical research itself. The CDC putting out their own shoddy studies, like their own study on natural immunity, looking at one state for two months, when they had data for years on all 50 states. Why did they only report that one sliver of data? Why did they salami slice the giant database? Because it gave them the result they wanted. Same with masking study. Well, the data has now caught up in giant systematic reviews and the public health officials were intellectually dishonest. They lied to the American people. Thank you. So the reason I, the reason I want to play that so often is, you know, I've been preparing for this show for several years now, and I go on social media and I try and collect videos of important things that people are saying. And I notice that a lot of that stuff is getting memory hold nowadays. I go back and I try and find the video of Gretchen Whitner basically saying, that she just ignored the CDC uh, data uh, because she just felt like it willy-nilly. And it really undermines the regime's ability to you trot out their experts and saying that they, you know, they follow the experts because she she says out, out loud, like, I don't follow the experts when I don't want to. And it's sort of a hypocritical thing. And, you know, for whatever reason, that gets memory hold. Uh, there's a lot of other videos too that get memory hold and that one I'm always worried is going to be memory hold because it's just a great synopsis of the truth of what we saw and when I believe 
that the reason that, uh, or at least a, a major part of the reason that we were able to have this situation during COVID where the data was manipulated and people were being canceled and we were not allowed to discuss out loud things like masks don't work. And now we've got the Cochrane review that again proves masks don't work. And the thing that's important to me is we knew that the mask didn't work before COVID. All right. Nothing got learned during COVID that changed anything about respiratory viruses, their size, the mechanics of how a mask works and how ineffective they are at preventing the spread and transmission of respiratory type, type illnesses. We didn't learn new stuff. Just the politics, the politics got to the point where we allowed, where we were allowed to say it out loud. And because we're living in this world where meritocracy seems to have taken a back seat, uh, you know, we were, when COVID was, was getting to the point where the new strains were, were mild as they are now and causing less of a problem. The data on masks was, we were, it was not that we were learning about masks. It was like somewhere along the COVID experience, we were allowed again to say what all doctors should have known is that they don't work. And I would bring it up at the hospitals where I work. Like, can we at least start talking about getting rid of the mask? Because the hospitals made us wear these masks for like ever, like just being in the hospital. And it was just so dumb. And I would, every time I would bring it up and they would just yell at me, oh, the CDC says we have to do it. And it's like, why does, why are we doing this? Like, we should all know that they don't work. And the fact that the CDC was saying it is should be a red light to everybody, but it wasn't. And so Marty McCarry uh, encapsulates all of that in that statement. And it's really important to me to get it out there because I want uh, enough people to hear it so that it's burned in our memories uh, so that if they ever do memory hole, it will know that it was there. Now, <clears throat> this meritocracy, when... When you have a meritocracy, it works on two ends. The first end is meritocracy gets the best people in position so that we get the best functioning doctors and pilots and astronauts and lawyers and all this kind of stuff. And when we start using criteria other than merit, other than ability and accomplishment, it also takes away the incentive to work hard. And... When I look at myself as a physician, I, I consider myself to be a very good physician. I have uh, a, a bunch of different things. And this is sort of the irony to, to the way they select for doctors. But when I look at medical school, and I've told my story a million times, it took me five tries to get into med school. And when I got there, I thought I was going to be surrounded by the greatest people on the history of the planet. And what I found was I wouldn't let 60% of my class touch me or my family with a 10-foot pole. And a lot of it just had to do with character issues. Like the one thing medical school selects out for, at least did when I was going through, is you can take standardized tests well. Now, I was an exception to that rule. I did not take standardized tests well. And I've shared this story before, but when I graduated uh, from college, I applied to medical school and I felt like getting into medical school was going to be like getting into college. Like, you know, if you have okay grades, you might not get into the best college, but you'll get into some college, right? Uh, but medical school is not like that. If you don't have great grades, you're not getting in, period. And so I didn't realize that, but I applied to medical school my first try and I didn't get any, or I didn't get, you know, any, uh, 
invitations for interviews, so just died on the vine. Uh, I had to take the med- medical college admissions test, the MCAT. And I took the test three times. The first time I took it, I got a two out of 15 on the reading comprehension. A two out of 15. It was so horrible that I felt like what I must have done was got confused on the bubbles. And for you young folks out there that are used to taking uh, tests on the computer, back in the day we used to have a form, I think it was called a Scantron, and you would fill in the bubbles with a number two pencil and, you know, you'd have questions one through a hundred or whatever. And if you got off one bubble, you made a mistake, then all of your other answers would be wrong. And you could do, you could really bomb a test that way. And it would happen every now and then. And so I got a two out of 15. I thought to myself, well, I must have gotten the bubbles wrong on the Scantron because two out of 15 is horrible. Uh, so I studied at Stanley Kaplan. So at the time I was working two jobs as a bartender and a fitness trainer. And I would go to Stanley Kaplan every night for six hours. So I was putting in the time doing the work. I took the MCAT a second time. And this time I got a five on the reading comprehension, five out of 15. And I thought to myself, is it five out of 16? Whatever. I got a low score. And I thought to myself, how is this even possible? Like I can't do it. And so I would go to Stanley Kaplan, which is a, I don't know if young people even know about this anymore, but Stanley Kaplan is where you used to go to prepare for any kind of standardized test, whether it was the SAT, the LSAT, the MCAT. You go there, they have a bunch of tests, you pay money. They had <clears throat> earphones, you listen to the tapes, and then you take practice tests, and it was a way to prepare. And so I spent hours and hours and hours every day after working my two jobs to study for this test. And somewhere along the way, I was also going to different Colleges, different medical schools to try and get information and to establish connection. And so I went to Georgetown University and there was a very nice lady who was one of the doctors on the admissions committee there. And I was talking to her about wanting to get into med school and giving her my story. And she looked at my MCAT score and she just said to me, you have a reading disability. And I said to myself, well, what do you mean reading disability? And she goes, yeah, you did really high in the sciences, but you got a two in the reading comprehension. She goes, people who don't even speak English can get better than a two on the reading comprehension. And I thought to myself, okay, well, that makes me feel great. Uh, but what's the difference between not being able to read well enough to do this MCAT and being too stupid to be a doctor. Cause at this point I'm, I'm adult enough and mature enough. Like if that's in the cards for me, just tell me so I don't waste my time. And she looked at me and she goes, no, no, you are clearly able to comprehend comp- uh, complicated things as evidenced by your science scores, but your ability to process is flawed. And at the time I knew nothing about this. I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about, but what do you suggest? And she said, well, you should go back to Berkeley, go to their disabled students union, and I bet you they have somebody who can help you. And so I went there. Sure enough, I got tested. I spent all day taking this reading test. And at the end of the day, this person said, like, you have one of the worst reading disabilities I've ever seen. And the fact that you were able to go to private school, you know, a competitive private school and college and do as well as you did shows that you're a really smart guy, but your processing is just absolutely horrible. And I was like, okay, so what do I do? And she said, well, you need to learn how to read. And I thought, well, that's kind of weird. I'm already graduated from college. Learning how to read seems kind of late. But she said, you can do it. <clears throat> so I went and I took advantage of their testing help. And I, for the next year, I learned how to read and I had to learn other things too. Like I simply do not have the ability to cram. So cramming is when you wait till the last minute and you try to quickly study everything and, uh, you know, take the test the next day. 
And cramming does not work for me. I'm not capable of doing it. Now, God works in mysterious ways, and this is one of the mysterious ways that he did work in my life. I hung out with some of the smartest people you ever saw, and I I don't know if you guys have ever come across these people, but I had my friend Lex in residency, my friend Rick in medical school, and my friend Sammy in college, and these guys were ridiculously smart. These were the kind of people they could read an entire book in a night and have the whole thing memorized. Lex was literally, uh, when we were first-year uh, residents at the University of Miami, we would have to take the orthopedic in training exam every year and you would take the, you would take the actual exam. So of course a first year resident wouldn't do very well compared to a fifth year because, you know, we don't have, we have four less years of training. So we don't know stuff. We're taking the same test. Lex, when we were first years, he was getting in the 99th percentile for everybody. And I remember looking at him like, Lex, how in the world do you know all this orthopedics? And he goes, I don't. I just know how to take the test. And he was one of these ridiculous genius guys who could just look at an exam and know the right answer. And he was one of these guys. He could read an entire textbook in a night, and then he would know, yeah, page 712, it says this. He was one of those guys. So these were the people that I hung around, and I was not that guy at all. I was very jealous of these people. And so uh, I started learning how to read. I had to get extra time to take the MCAT on my third try. And I was very nervous about it, meaning I'm going to get extra time. That means they're going to put an asterisk next to my number. And I was afraid that was going to hurt me getting in. But I could not do the reading comprehension at the time in the time that they gave me. And so I took the third MCAT with the extra time. I was in my own room. And so I was. it was quiet. And I crushed it. I got – I don't remember what the score was, but, I mean, I crushed it. And I thought to my, I remember I was working at my healthcare gym as a fitness trainer. I got my, my, uh, my roommate got the, uh, letter and he calls me and he says, Hey, your MCAT score came back. And I was sitting there on the phone. I was like, all right, what is it? And he told me what it was. And I remember just running around the uh, gym, jumping in the air and just cheering. I mean, I was, it was one of the most exciting, um, days of my life. And I thought I would get into medical school with it because it was such a high score, but I didn't. And so I realized I'm going to have to go back to graduate school to get my grades up. And that's what I did. I ended up getting my grades up. And then fourth try, I still got nothing, no no offers for interviews. And I got straight A's in grad school. And I remember my father pulling me aside saying, hey, listen, Scott, you loser. He didn't say that, but... He was basically saying, like, you might want to think about doing something else with your life because this medical school thing doesn't seem to be working out for you. And I just want you to know I love you whether you're a doctor or not. And I looked at my dad and I said, I appreciate you saying that, Dad, but this has nothing to do with you. This is my calling in life. I want to do this, and so I'm going to do it. And so uh, I applied a fifth time. I finally got in uh, to one school, <clears throat> St. Louis University. I got into one other after that, but um, went to St. Louis which was a Catholic university and it was a private school and it was, uh, I hated St. Louis. The weather was horrible. You know, as a kid growing up in Hawaii and California, that was the first time I became aware that not everybody has 330 nice days of weather a year. So that was kind of a shock. And uh, the fact that it gets dark at like two o'clock in the afternoon in the winter was hard to take, but I was very well trained and it prepared me very well to be a doctor. And the most important thing was, I had this reading disability, and so I had the ability to take extra time on my exams in medical school, but I had a decision to make. 
if I took that extra time, there was going to be an asterisk next to my name. I was worried. I didn't know if there would be, but I was afraid there would be. And that, that might affect my ability to get into orthopedic surgery because, you know, you can't get into orthopedic surgery unless you, not you can't, but it's very difficult to get into orthopedic surgery if you're not at the top of your class and you don't have very high board scores. And so I, at this time I had been studying how to read for a year and, uh, I said to myself, okay, I'm going to just go straight up. I'm going to compete without the extra time. And so I went through my med school and I did not get the extra time. And I worked so hard to get my grades. I graduated fourth in my med school class. My friend Rick, the smart guy, he graduated number two. The fourth was the best I could do. That was every single thing I had. I could never do those four years again. It was the hardest thing I ever did. But it was a world of meritocracy, of competing in the crucible, of going against other people and being the very best that I could be that allowed me to do it. And it was my father telling me that good things come to those who work hard. And my understanding that, you know, when I got to medical school, I was five years older than most of my uh, classmates. You know, a lot of these kids, they go straight through high school, straight through college, and then straight into med school. And they don't do other things, you know, and by the time you get into med school, it's a really difficult experience. And so um, they get they get distracted by, you know, wanting to go out on dates and do other things and it doesn't work. Whereas I had done all that stuff. I was ready to completely commit to it and I was mature enough to stay focused. And what it did was it made me work so hard. I ended up getting the lowest A in every class, but I got a low A in every class, which at the end added up to me graduating fourth in my class. And the point I'm trying to make is I was not given all the greatest tools in the world. I was not blessed with a great ability to read. I couldn't look at exams and know what the, what the exam was, but it compelled me to spend four years studying my material to the best of my ability. And the other thing is when you cram material, you don't retain it for the long term. But when you study it the way I studied it, you retain it for a long time, and it helped me be a better doctor and the doctor that I am today. And so this show has been about understanding that we have got to return back to meritocracy and that in order to allow people to engage in a society based on meritocracy, we also have to get back to restoring the family and to promoting the time and tested values, what wisdom is. Wisdom is the knowledge of things that never change. Honesty, integrity, accountability, being a good teammate, no quitting, no excuses, hard work, do the best you can. And God gives us all gifts. And if you're, you know, I still wish I could have been a professional soccer player, but that was not in the cards for me. But I was able to take those same lessons and that same work ethic and that same mindset and translate it into something else. Now, we've got people that are bailing in all kinds of things. I have friends that are leaving SWAT, you know, because they say that the leadership is messed up. And we've gotten into this place where 30 years of uh, not putting meritocracies front and center has led to a deterioration of our institutions from government to hospital systems to our police force. And in order for our society to recover, we have got to get back to meritocracy and we've got to get back to pushing everybody to be the best they can be. 
because in the end, that works out best for all of us. It works out best for the individual who's going to be a, a doctor or a lawyer. Um, and it also works out better for the society that needs these doctors and lawyers. We're going to pick this up next time on the Doctor's Lounge. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope that wasn't too boring for you guys. But meritocracy, it's the way to go. Uh, everybody have a great new year. Uh, we'll see you next time on the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.